0: You're listening
1: to... Whoa! hot
2: luck, And hey, welcome to the Good Pop Culture Club episode 73? 73, wow. It is Thursday, September the 16th, 2021. It is the dawn of a new age here in California. Maybe, maybe we have a new governor, maybe we don't, who knows? We're recording this on Tuesday, so... We can't read the future, but we're either going to be in business as usual or a new police state. So we'll see.
0: Ooh, oh, yanks. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got to say about that. Mm, Yikes.
1: What's funny is, like, you know, at my job, this was brought up several times, and I and I love how they have a local in LA, and they know not to tap me to report on it <laughs> because that's not my specialty. But we were talking about it, and then all of a sudden, someone's like, "Han, you sound kind of depressed. Like, you don't think it's gonna, you're not gonna get a no vote?" And I was just like, "Look, this year has gone crap. I'm not going to get my hopes up." Uh, but I yeah, mean, you so. should just
0: always mentally and emotionally prepare for like darkest timeline and then like nothing can
1: then nothing can shake you right yeah i'm I'm a catastrophist
2: this happened once before and we ended up with the governator so
1: oh yeah i'm not gonna be not a great track
2: record yeah Yeah. (sighs) huh well this isn't a politics podcast this is a pop culture podcast and joining me as always to talk about all the pop culture that gets us through our days we have self-proclaimed professional Asian American Jess Jew. Hey Jess. Hello,
0: hello, Marvin.
2: How's your day going?
0: Um, things are picking up. You know, um, as I said before, yikes! I'm trying not to deal, take that on until I take that on. But uh, things are things are picking up again. Some things are happening back in person. I still don't know if I want to go out all the time. And also, I really, I really miss my dog. So, you know, half the time, I think that's a new barometer. If you're not more cool than chilling with my dog, I'm not going to be there.
2: <laughs> that's growing up. Oh, that that's getting old, huh?
0: <laughs> yeah, my knees are pretty warped right <laughs> now.
2: <laughs> also joining us, professional culture editor Han Win. Hey, Han. Hey are you still at a uh
1: yes <laughs> yes yes i'm still at tca you're uh, posting
2: some new law and order stuff dun
1: dun. um <laughs> yes uh olivia benson and whatever St- elliot stapler they're still on two different shows but i think or are they together again whatever people want them together I, i'm just the shipping on that in that fandom i can't keep up with but uh yeah, we were supposed to get both of them at, at TCA and all of a sudden we got, we heard that Marishka was stuck on set and she couldn't arrive. So it was just Chris Maloney holding court, you know, uh, uh on Zoom. And I He's like that. a new internet
0: sensation, though, because he got a dump truck ass and the Gen buns? Z loves it. What yeah. the fuck?
1: <laughs> yeah, seriously? Like, I was reading all that stuff and I was just like, how is this a story? <laughs> have wait, you wait, wait. seen his dump truck ass though yes, it's a yes. dump
0: truck ass yes, sure.
1: sure
0: um what yes is, you can what, what, you can google that
2: what does that mean
0: it's, it's big really, it's great it's big and <laughs> bound looks looks it's big a big in a good a, way wait it's, it's s- a bubble butt that's very firm okay
2: so this of, is like yes. beyond bubble butt then
0: it's like it's like a well it's just it's a bubble butt proportional to his size because he's a he's a he's, he's a, a, you know, he's fairly a big, man. big man he's like over 200 pounds very tall and so people were like but people were just really surprised because i think we're so used to you know elliot stabler but like you know law and order ain't giving us that like ass shot we want well
1: not yet not yet maybe maybe now but yeah and you know so you look at his face i hate to say it and you're like oh he probably has a flat ass nope you are wrong uh (laughs) i'm sure all the oz (laughs) fans are like we be knowing Sure. Yep, absolutely. You know what? Look, he's been in a lot of things and uh I, I find him very enjoyable. Like he, yeah. he was in, happy also. Um and he was in pose, you know? Uh but he's so. like, you
0: know, like kind of like America's like cop dad or cop mm-hmm. uncle, you know, and you don't expect cop uncle to have a dump truck ass.
2: <laughs> I mean, uh, he also has some pretty good comedy chops, right? Didn't he come from comedy before becoming a TV cop?
1: Yeah, he 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 has comedy chops, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, very much like him. But yes, press tour uh, was this week for that. And then the very last week of press tour for this year is next week. And we get three days of Warner Media. Oh, God.
2: What's on uh, the docket? What are you excited about?
1: Well, I would share it if they gave us a schedule. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the, this is kind of the issue that we've been dealing with. It's just like press tour goes on forever. And they also don't give us a hell of a lot of, uh, Uh, heads up on certain things so oh shoot i just got reminded of something that i should have been watching anyway um (laughs) but uh yeah and so i mean we make assumptions that there's there's going to be a tnt and youtube day um there's there's going to be an hbo hbo max day um and i think that we're going to get an adult swim so we might get rick and morty oh who knows um so yeah there's a lot of guesses and depending on like what's coming up i'm assuming there's going to be a succession panel, you know, because it returns uh, mid-October for its third season. Um, yeah. So there, there there, are probably a lot of good things coming. And honestly, I wouldn't be as mad at them as if it weren't like the final week just all to itself. Like, why do we have one day of press tour this week and then we have to wait in a whole other week to have three other days? I don't understand. That um,
2: I mean, way they can but. maximize the week of press. I don't know. I don't know how PR people think. um, Yeah, I'm assuming maximum. There are reasons. There (laughs) are
1: reasons. I'm sure that do not take into account our feelings as reporters. So, are you gonna Rick and Morty until TCA is over, Han? (laughs) Am I gonna Rick and Morty till then? Uh, No, that's too much work. (laughs) Marvin, do you know what I'm talking about? I don't think so. It's a TikTok meme
0: where you basically just sing that Rick and Morty song and do like this. Uh, you sing and dance the Rick and Morty song until like something happens. But the something that happens is usually something like very serious or very like tragic, like yeah. Rick and Morty until like the homelessness bill is passed. I'm going to Rick it, and Morty until my sister leaves her abusive partner, like yeah. shit like that. I <laughs> it's mean, a Gen Z TikTok meme.
1: Yeah. I would say to Rick and Morty until something probably that's worthwhile till till press tour ends. No, it's fine like i'll use my powers for good i guess <laughs> and not for selfishness. yeah
2: i think if for the future reference if ever anything is a tiktok thing just assume i don't know anything about it
1: yeah okay okay noted i i i have to i will join someday um but right now i just get all <laughs> that's my what i said about clubhouse
2: Internet. and the moment i joined apparently it's over so
1: well i i, I can't join clubhouse because i don't have an iPhone or whatever? Oh,
0: no, it's Android open now, Yeah, too. that's all I oh, do. Oh, I mean, shoot.
1: Oh, well, no one's invited me,
0: so I don't It's care. okay. It's over. Nothing's on <laughs> yeah. there anymore. So, maybe if you join TikTok, you can kill it.
1: Yeah, Salon just has a TikTok. And so that's why I keep getting, you know, like, pressured now from work to, like, join. And I was like, okay, we can join the whatever few followers that Salon has. I'm
2: too busy playing my new pinball gotcha game. <laughs> it's pretty good. I haven't spent any money yet, but I'm close.
0: Marvin, don't do it. Don't do it. It's against principles, the principle of it.
2: Uh, well, yeah. on this episode of Good Pop, we're talking all about the new Justin Chan film, Blue Bayou, which is his newest film that it's getting released this week, right? Yes, yeah, September 17th. 17th. Wow. But before we get to that, let's find out what pop culture is beginning us through the week. Um, Jess, what's poppin'?
0: So I've not really had time to consume a lot of books or TVs. Also, my mom lost my Roku remote. So like I've not what? been able to turn on my TV. I need to order another one. But what I have been following is the Met Gala, baby. Mm-hmm. Um, the Met Gala, which is the fun, big, fancy fundraiser party that is to benefit the Costume Institute at the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Typically happens the first Monday in May. There's a whole documentary about it. You can watch it. Of course, because of COVID, it was essentially canceled in 2020 and moved from 2021 to just this past Monday and the theme was Americana and it was disappointing overall. <laughs> so the met's supposed to be where you bring your not even your A game fashion like your A++ plus fashion. Like this is not the Oscars, this is not the mm-hmm. time to just wear a pretty gown and like show up. This is the time where you're supposed to like push like fashion and what fashion can do. It's typically called the hardest, you know, the most exclusive party in America. The hardest ticket to get. There's like this whole process of you basically have to be invited by a designer. There's always a theme. You know, half the time celebrities don't dress to the theme because I don't expect anything from celebrities anymore is what I've
2: learned. Wasn't this Um, the one with the very um, bad Oriental theme uh, a few years ago?
0: No, that was China Through the Looking Glass in twenty. Teen, i want to say it was not a bad theme people are just dumb and don't know how to translate a theme because yep. <laughs> it's hard for me to be mad at that theme when it produced one of my favorite looks from rihanna ever mm-hmm. you know when she wore that huge yellow gold page dress that people were saying looked like bonseo mm-hmm. um i just take that as a compliment no there are there are always ways to do it
1: right um
0: but you know i'm just at this point where i understand celebrities not that smart they yeah, don't know what
1: they they're doing? They they only know what they're doing if they're hiring the right person to give them the right look. Because basically, this is a chance to be avant garde. Yes,
0: and some of our favorites. Okay, so the the funny thing this year was basically they're trying to, and I I don't think this is an incorrect move, because this is where culture is shifting and pop culture, media culture is shifting. But essentially, this year's co chairs, the like Met always has like. A few celebrity co chairs were all under the age of 25. So it was Timothy Chalamet, 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 Shale- Chalamet, T- Chalamet. Timmy, it was Timmy. Timmy. It was uh, Naomi Osaka. Yeah, he's pretty, he's like uh, 24. I always he's thought he
2: young. was, he's one of those like older people who looks really young.
1: No, no, he's no. a young. He's a young person with uh old eyes, basically. <laughs> An old yes. soul. Yes.
0: Yeah, uh, but Billy Eilish and Amanda Gorman, who are all the co-chairs, and they made a very conscious effort to basically invite, uh, new let's call them mm-hmm. uh, gracefully new media stars, yep. Yep. aka TikTokers, YouTubers, influencers of that like. um, And you know what? You could tell because they did <laughs> not bring it. They did not bring it. Like we were missing some of the Typical great presences like Lady Gaga did not show up. Zendaya was busy filming, so she did not show up. She she kills it every year. Mm-hmm. And so, and the theme itself, Americana, was like, you would think it's like so broad, you can't fuck it up. And it was so boring. Like so many just like regular pretty gowns, barely any, like a lot of people did not even wear American designers, which I, I would... kind of, you know, I kind of get, because, you know, you're kind of, being invited on behalf of a certain fashion designer you have to wear them and some of those most a lot of those fashion designers are not american but i'm like you couldn't make like a very like we we have a very actually interesting like heritage of certain textiles like there are some things that are uniquely american
2: i mean and, i was surprised given yeah. the, the last 4 years that we did have that people weren't more provocative with their designs neither
0: I, I mean I guess they don't want to skirt controversy, but like as an um, like if you were an American citizen wearing an American designer, like you could say you know you could say a lot with some of the things. Like there's a lot to say about America right now. Um, but there were some good looks I really liked. Uh, Lupita Nyong'o she wore like a denim dress. It was beautifully done. Do you actually- like a uh, kim kardashian i actually really loved kim kardashian's look it was not the look itself but the idea was very yeah. very cheekily executed and
1: i respect it i appreciate even the things that i find ugly because i was like at least you gave me a spectacle yes. someone who is definitely not ugly um is yara shahidi her outfit, oh, was, her outfit was beautiful. I was just like, "Girl, if I didn't already feel like you were like gorgeous, <laughs> I was just like and but and that was a tribute to Josephine Baker, I believe. Yes. Um, and, but we did get a few people. I think there's some. I don't even know how to say her name. Uh, Quana Chasing Horse. Oh
0: um, my God, her outfit was fantastic. So she's a she's a Native Indigenous model. Wore this beautiful jewelry, like turquoise jewelry. I've never liked turquoise before. Because I have it has been terribly misused for white southwestern jewelry yeah. and sold in like Tchotchke shops. It's not a good look. That's how you wear turquoise. It's beautiful. And she, you know, has that really amazing tattoo on her chin. Um, sorry, I don't know what it's called specifically, but oh mm-hmm. my gosh, she's also just gorgeous, like
1: so statuesque. Yeah. Um, and what's, you know, and and of course, we if we were talking about American you know there you go so that's why i appreciated that there are a few other like fun outfits but yeah i don't know if i was blown away as in previous years yes
0: i mean i even appreciate horse girl i i yes, one of the exactly. like tiktokers or like a freaking horse like literally a horse bodice, Head. and i <laughs> yes. will take that over like um i think the the one that like i think people are ragging on really hard is the uh one of the tiktok people or one of the like influencers it might have been like Madison Beer, who I legitimately do not know who that is. Like, I know, I know the know name, but I do not know who that is. She wore like a very, like everyone says her dress looks like a early 2000s prom dress. And the styling looks like an early 2000s prom. And I'm like, absolutely. I had friends who wore a dress like that, like long ball gown with like the bejeweled like sides and straps. Oh, my
1: God. It totally is just a boring prom dress. I was oh. like, this is the Met Gala. Excuse you. <laughs> yeah,
2: Nothing that's... says Americana more than
0: early 2000s. Pro- <laughs> I'm like, I was like, at that point, you might as well just gone full like camp and worn like a Jessica McClintock dress. Yeah, that oh at least would have been funny. <laughs> like, like you know, that would have been tongue camp, in cheek. Yeah, that would have been kind of camp, camp being it up. Um, A lot of great lot of Asians on this red carpet. Did any of them really bring it nope. to the level I wanted? No. Uh, Gemma was close, but I mm-hmm. think a short dress at the Met Gala is weird, even though it, it was a very lovely tribute to Anime Mae Wong. Um, I poo-poo every single man who just wore a tux, like, <laughs> shame on you, how dare you, give mm-hmm. me something. Maluma looked great. He had this red like cowboy outfit. I was like, bring that energy, please. Um like, yeah, the men are always so boring. Like, Billy, I don't know if Billy Porter even was there. Like, he usually shows up, but not this year. Ugh, just, like, so blah.
1: i like, Lil, Lil Nas X did his thing. Um, Lil Nas, had, Nas X is great. Yeah. Um, he had an outfit change.
0: Yes, three. He had three outfits. Yeah. So he changed twice, which, you know, we love. You know, wow. your mom always said layers. Layers are key. Um, that's
2: like, that's a whole Chinese wedding right there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's true. (laughs) Um, So I have been consumed with this. I'm still reading. Um, There's also was a really fun Twitter thread where like, I'm just going to, I don't know what the Met Gala theme is this year. Didn't pay attention. I'm going to try to guess. No clue what it is. Just random guesses. Those were fun. That's fun. (laughs)
1: Uh, Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I am (laughs) hoping, I mean, maybe I should cut everyone some slack. We have been in a pandemic for the last 18 months or so. But yes, I hope next year's theme is a little more inspired and people bring it.
1: Yeah, because after camp, I was like, oh, my God. That's I, that also so
0: why like camp was such oh. an amazing theme. They, they, People did better than usual because of the theme. And um, like especially because that was the last one and it sat within our minds for so long. Mm. And like to wait 18 months for like this is kind of disappointing. <laughs> But Han, what's popping with you?
1: Okay, so sort of a weird uh, duo of books that I read recently. Um, I realized that in my reading of a lot of YA and romance, um, while I had started reading some um, with gay characters and bisexual romances, things like that, um, I hadn't actually read a lot with trans characters um i've run into a few trans characters that are on the sidelines when it comes to uh i think there's a children's book and then uh sci-fi i I think sci-fi and fantasy often have better spaces for that but um i wanted to read something that was set in the real world so i happened to stumble upon um two that are ya set in high school um and uh, the first one's called May the Best Man Win, written by Z.R. Elor. And it's about Jeremy, who uh, comes out as trans uh, right before senior year. Um, and uh, basically, the summer before, dumped his boyfriend, Lucas, who is like a star. I don't know if it was quarterback, but football player. Um And so when they're starting their final senior year, decides to run against him as homecoming king. And so uh, it becomes a huge thing. Uh, There are a lot of characters in this. uh, There's a lot of high school drama. It's not just between the two of them. This is probably a book that I would say that these people are very messy (laughs) Um, in a way that I think would make for great television, but also like... For me, in my like, uh, uh, introverted ways, I don't know if I could deal with a friend group that does this, has this much emotion, um. But it was great because uh, they were. It was very entertaining. I do have to say, I kind of got like angry that they were both being very toxic to each other, but they were both also dealing with a lot of things. Um, Lucas also happens to have autism, uh, and is reeling from like a. Uh, his brother's recent death. Um, So there's just a lot, a lot, a lot going on. Um, And uh, there's some humor in there too. But uh, the other book I read was probably a bit more my speed uh, called The Passing Playbook by Isaac Fitzsimmons. And this is about a kid named Spencer who because of being bullied after uh, being confirmed as trans in their previous school now is going to a private school um he finally gets to join the boys soccer team because that was also something that he was not able to do at his previous school um makes lots of friends starts crushing on his best friend who's a fellow soccer player um eventually starts dating and then has to actually uh come out to uh their new boyfriend um who is also very religious (laughs) so That's there are a lot. things that, yeah there's a lot there but here's the thing i do have to say this the reason why i said this book is a little bit more of my speed was because the dramas i think are going to be inherent in um either of these plot lines but the people around this was a happier book It was probably a less realistic book because of that um but i also really 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 loved that clearly isaac fitzsimmons knows about soccer <laughs> Because the amount of writing about soccer and the strategy and how Spencer like makes space and can find space and all that type of stuff really, really spoke to me as a soccer player who also played soccer in high school and someone who is very upset that. Uh, Ted Lasso doesn't do more for soccer <laughs> than that because it barely is a soccer show. So, um, yeah, and there's actually a lot of soccer in the book and lots of, like, talking about plays and stuff like that. Um, so I, that's, uh, that was actually my favorite part of the whole book. Um, both of them do very well with um, explaining terms. I think uh, the May the Best Man Win sort of explains it a little bit more um, explicitly. Uh, And whereas Passing Playbook is a bit more um, circumspect and kind of gets to the point eventually. And uh, again, that's more my speed. Um, But I think the thing that they both did very well was sort of explaining sort of the issues that no one would think about unless you are dealing with um, that experience or have a friend or a loved one going through it, which is, you know, stuff like, you know, which bathroom do you use? But also, like, just if you're going to tell someone, you need to tell someone in a public space, but still be private because there could be issues to your safety when you tell that person. Um, it's just so many things that I was just like, um, also just the differences in um how schools nowadays probably have better LGBTQ support, you know, uh, clubs and groups, whereas, like, when I was growing up, they definitely didn't. Um, so yeah, it, it just made me like way, I felt like more aware. I'm not going to say I'm an expert or anything, but uh, yeah, it just made me think more. So that's me. What's popping with you, Marvin?
2: All right. So I've been slowly dipping my feet back into Star Wars after, I don't even know why Rise of Skywalker broke my heart because I hadn't even watched it yet, but it preemptively broke my you heart. You still so haven't I never, watched it? I took a oh big break. God. I still haven't watched that. I still haven't watched episode three neither. Although, I know what happens what? What? in it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, what? Marvin, that one is like 20-something years old at this point.
2: <laughs> I'm just saying. Star Wars and I have a long-term love-hate relationship. Um, it tends to break my heart every so often. And then we have to take a break before, you know, I slowly ease myself back in. And um, recently, I watched The Mandalorian with my dad. And actually, I um, recently started listening to a Clone Wars rewatch podcast um, called A More Civilized Age. And that actually got me interested in checking out um, the Clone Wars series, which, you know, for the longest time, as a fan of the original trilogy, I kind of stayed away from anything that had to do with the prequels. But, you know, since everything is available now on Disney+, Plus, I decided to check it out. And so I started watching the Clone Wars and the Bad Batch, which is the... um, I guess the spin-off of the clone wars mm-hmm. um, over the weekend and i gotta say it's it's just as good as people say it is um you know the first two seasons are a little rough the animation is not as polished as the later seasons and the um the way they tell stories you can totally tell that it's a show for kids but even in those early seasons they start doing the things that i wish the movies did better which is focus down on the world building and stories of characters that you know <laughs> aren't named skywalker and especially when it came to um, the most recent season, Season 7, and the new series, The Bad Batch, the animation gets really good, which is great because the storytelling is also at the top of its game. And yeah, I had a lot of fun catching up.
1: I Okay, I, I tried Clone Wars, and probably for the reasons you mentioned, <laughs> couldn't get into it. And so I'm wondering, can I not watch Clone Wars and just jump into Because I did start Rebels at one point, and then I stopped. And then I was like, do I need to watch... I think they now have visionaries or whatever. They call well, it. There's so just a lot. I
2: think they each have their um, their their pros and cons, right? Like Clone Wars is about literally the fall of the Republic. And it goes into a lot of the themes that are teased out in the prequel films, which is like, you know, the Republic is a regime in decline. The Jedi Order are a group of monastic self-proclaimed space cops that inadvertently aid the rise of a proto-fascist regime. And it does go into how the whole thing was kind of doomed to fail from the beginning. So I think it's actually really worth watching and it really adds flavor to the rest of the canon. And Disney Plus does have a list of like the essential episodes um, that give you the episodes that are most important to the overarching plot. And you can just watch all those and then jump into season seven, which is the most recent season produced um, after I think the show took a five year hiatus. And that season um, does some really great storytelling. Like if you like The Last Jedi in terms of the world building and how it approaches the the politics of the Star Wars universe, um, I think you'll really enjoy um, what season seven is doing. And it's just solid storytelling, like on par with anything like any other streaming service is putting out in terms of content.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, I guess we'll see. I, I think in theory, I do like exactly what you said, which is, you know, you have this whole galaxy, why are we just focusing on not just not just the Jedi, but the force sensitive, like kind of them over the force, you know, Yeah, very, very against space wizards because mm-hmm.
0: it's like, yeah, when you're a space wizard, you have to be part of the fray. Like, that's your calling. But like, I really like stories about like regular people who are like, what am I going to do? Yeah, I'm going to do.
1: Because there's already enough like fantastical and, and curious things and politics going on in the world, uh, in the Star Wars world that is. So you know, give me some weird animals with you know weird <laughs> limbs and just and uh, bounty hunters and all that stuff. I mean, so, I will yeah.
2: say the Clone Wars episodes that focus on the Jedi do do a pretty good job, very subtly um, implying that these you know space wizards slash self proclaimed peacekeepers. Are a little out of touch with what peacekeeping means, uh, because they've also self-proclaimed themselves as generals leading armies to, you know, "quote unquote" defend democracy. Uh, so
0: what you're saying is that Jedi's are cops, and we know all cops are bastards. So you're <laughs> saying all Jedi's are bastards.
2: I mean, you kind of saw that in the prequel movies too, right? Like, imagine, like, there's been essays and like think pieces on how Anakin would have never become Darth Vader if the Jedi's had the their job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If they walk the walk, right?
0: Or, you know, if you just let this man, you know, get married and hit it, like, and not have to hide it, (laughs) we'd all be fine.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And so I'm also watching The Bad Batch, which is the Mm -hmm. most recent um, show that's a spinoff of The Clone Wars. It centers on a group of clone soldiers that have mutations um, because of cloning shenanigans. And so they weren't affected by Order 66, which was the order that compelled all the clones to murder all the Jedi in um, Revenge of the Sith. And so the show follows this group of rogue soldiers as they try to escape the new empire and then figure out you know how to survive in the new world order. And what's really interesting in the show, in addition to the characters, you know, doing cool mercenary stuff is the fact that the creators also take this opportunity to tell the story of the early days of the, this new fascist empire. And through, you know, the background and settings of the episodes, we see um, what the empire does to start consolidating its power, including, you know, using unification of currency as an excuse to register citizens for um, future monitoring um, the establishment of puppet regimes to control the more um, rowdy constituents and like the systematic oppression of minorities, which was which was interesting to see um, the animation again is real good. Uh, a lot of the space scenes look just as good as like the more recent movies like Rogue One. Um, and, you know, if they never go back on the ground, you might not realize that it's a animated show with, you know, cartoon people.
1: Okay. Bad Batch, actually, maybe I can just jump into that. And if it's not—it's less intimidating to me because I know it just started. so <laughs> uh, Or not started, like it wrapped its first season. But, you know, yeah, just this year.
2: But yeah, no, I've been having a lot of fun, like, exploring the Star Wars universe through this. Like, I had a period of time as a kid where I was obsessed with Star Wars. But all the stories that I read in my youth isn't canon anymore because Disney bought it and decided everything mm, that was written yep. before, like, tw- 2008 is now, like... Fake Star Wars. It's legends. Are you I've, still
0: mad about? Are you still hurt by that, Marvin?
2: I'm okay. I'm just, oh, uh, a little bit. I'm just, you know, I have all this knowledge that is now like completely useless because they're not, it's not real anymore uh, because Mickey Mouse has decided to do his own thing with Star you, Wars. You
0: do, you do sound a little scarred. <laughs> a um, little bitter. A little, yeah. Like Mickey did this. He did this.
2: But I'm having fun. I did have a lot of fun this weekend kind of reconnecting with this new version of Star Wars um, and kind of seeing like Dave Filoni and his crew doing things that like J.J. Abrams would never. You know.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm still mad. Don't don't even watch. <laughs> yeah. Rise <No>. of
1: Skywalker.
2: <laughs> I'm halfway through the Bad Batch. So I'm looking forward to watching the rest of it this week. And I'm actually finding myself looking forward to, like, the next few, because they're being led by Dave Filoni. All the live-action Star Wars that are coming out with Ahsoka, with, um, um, who's the sexy spy man, Andor?
0: Oh, that one? Uh, okay, like, I am, I am, I, I'm not, I'm, I can't, that one I'm not ready for, I am not ready for the, hate the, the, the hating the Obi-Wan with the Hayden Christensen, like, I'm not <laughs> ready for that one. either. know, was Maya Erskine in it, Deborah Chow, those, those, I'm waiting for those. But I'm not ready for them because my body and my heart <laughs> can't take it.
2: So, yeah, maybe this will give me the motivation to finally watch Rise of Skywalker.
0: Eh, I mean, you're just going to disappoint yourself. So, like, you don't even got it. <laughs>
2: you know Just we can probably Rogue do One. let's do we should probably do like a pop culture gap episode where i watch episode three and episode nine and i think you should it should
0: be a live react i think we should all watch as a live react
2: <laughs> uh, but yeah star wars good again in my book so that's that's good <laughs> <laughs> all right well that's what's popping for this week we're gonna take a quick break when we come back we're talking about justin chan's newest film blue Bite. stick around a play that explores the lost we're Cambodian pop music of the 60s and 70s, and, and of course, phoba. Just to name a few stories. You can find Asian Americana at AsianAmericana.com or on your podcast app. And we're getting tired of And welcome back to the Good Pop Culture Club. This week we're talking about Blue Bayou, the latest film from Justin Chan in which he writes, directs, and stars in. In the film, Justin plays Antonio LeBlanc, a Korean-American adoptee struggling to build a better life for himself and his family, including his pregnant wife and stepdaughter, who after an altercation with local law enforcement finds out that his adoptive parents never finished the process of getting him citizenship when they adopted him from Korea and so is set to be deported. The film then follows his journey as he fights to stay with his family and the only country he's ever known. Blue Bayou also stars Alicia Vikander as Antonio's wife, Kathy, Sidney Kowalski as his stepdaughter, Jessie, and Lin Dam Pham as Parker, a Vietnamese-American woman that he befriends at a hospital. So, what do we all think of Blue Bayou?
0: I'm going to be very transparent. I fucked up and I did not watch this (laughs) in time, but I still have a lot of questions because, you know, I'm very familiar with Justin's previous works. I've watched all of them, and um, so maybe I'll just be the host asking y'all questions this time, Marvin. <laughs> so, what did you think about it? What were your first impressions?
2: So, this is Justin Chan's third film. Um, his first two films were *Gook* and *Miss Purple*, which both premiered at Sundance. Uh, Justin and I were actually at the *Miss Purple* premiere at Sundance um, a couple years ago.
0: Yes, we did. We like were like I was like the second to last person to get a seat. <laughs>
2: And yeah, over these past three films, Justin has definitely established himself as a director in both style and reputation. He likes to make films about working class Asian Americans, specifically those that the economy has left behind, who's forced to work in the shadow economy, like the petty grift in Gook and the under the table work in Miss Purple. Um, In this film, he plays a struggling tattoo artist who dreams of becoming a motorcycle mechanic, um, but can't find a job because... Of his um, criminal background and Justin does a great job writing and portraying these characters um, with a lot of authenticity and emotion like Justin's performance as Antonio um, really carries the film and he's like just just so much emotion in his acting um, which helps because this film is trying to do a lot which is also part of Justin's style I don't know if this comes from his style as director or writer probably both but Um, It really feels like this film is trying to do it all and if it doesn't pull it off. Um, The film is a quote-unquote issue film with all the pros and cons of it. You know, it has to tell an engaging emotional story while also educating about a real-life issue that's going on. And, you know, in these films... If you lay the melodrama on too thick, it kind of veers into crash territory, <laughs> oh, um, where it's a lot of gravitas but not a lot of substance. And I was really impressed that the film doesn't cross that line, despite having tons of melodrama. Like this film is not—it's not a subtle film. Justin paints um, the issue with a very heavy brush, um, but in the end, I feel like he pulls it off.
1: Yeah, I think I think you're right in on one hand comparing it to crash as far as it's an issue film it's not subtle but i think definitely the point you're making about it not crossing the line is i don't actually disagree with the choices that are made whereas i think crash like ends up being problematic And I don't actually think this film is problematic. I mean, there are a few things that I'm kind of questioning, like why did he decide to do that? Um, But I kind of agree with pretty much everything he's presenting. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I overall, uh, I I had I was kind of torn about, like, do I like this film? And there were many things to very much like about it. Um, you're right, Justin Chon is is a good actor, and he really carried this and and without his central performance I don't know how much I would have cared because he definitely has charisma as Antonio LeBlanc Um, he's He's just trying so hard, man. Like the the character that is, not Justin. He's acting fine. Um, but he's just trying <laughs> so hard that I just like my heart bleeds for him. I'm just like, someone give him a chance. Like let him like clean your your school, whatever it is he needs to do, like give him a job. Um and it's just it's it is tough when you you know, him showing basically, you know, a working class guy who's just can't seem to break free of his past because you know, crimes, the crimes are following him everywhere, basically.
2: Yeah. I mean, the opening scene in this film is one of the best scenes that Justin has filmed. Ironically, probably one of the most subtle ones that he's filmed as well, right? It's just like a static shot of him at a job interview at a mechanic shop with an unseen interviewer, and he's just being torn. Like, you know, it opens with a where are you really from, which, you know, <laughs> could be kind of cheesy, especially as an Asian American. But totally works in this in this context. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, the first question he gets before the where are you really from is Antonio Blank. Where do you get a name like that? <laughs> because, you know, it's <laughs> like there's this like Asian dude in front of you. And so I hate to say it. That would be kind of my first thought. But then I would also be like, you're probably adopted. So then I wouldn't ask it. Um,
2: yeah. And then the interviewer goes on to ask him about his criminal past. Like, I see you have two felonies. Mm-hmm. And like he tries his best saying, well, I have you know, he, he brings his stepdaughter in as a character witness and tries his best like that's behind me. I don't do that anymore. I'm trying to provide for my family. And you can see in his eyes that he starts losing hope that he'll even get this job. And I think that's such an important scene to, like, get the audience on the side of Justin Chong's character, because we see a guy who's, you know, like, constantly trying so hard to, like, turn his life around or at least provide for his family, but just not giving the chance because of past action that you know we we never learn why he did those crimes you know why it's because of where and how he grew up bouncing from foster home to foster home and like when you're trying to survive you do what you can and a big part of the film is you know antonio is constantly struggling against like the bureaucracy right like systems put in place to keep him from opportunities because of who he is and what he's done that don't take into account like how circumstances may change and this is what gets him into trouble. Um, and this is where these films, um, one of the things that are always like tough for me to follow in issue films is how everything seems to be like super coincidental, right? Like his best friend happens to be an ice agent, his wife's ex-husband happens to be a cop who happens to have a racist partner. Yeah,
1: there are a few too many conveniences here. Uh something I did like. That when you're referring to the first scene establishing what's important in the film, uh, is the introduction of the stepdaughter, because I think Jesse, um, played by Sonia Kowalski, is actually fantastic. I think the actress is great, the character is great. She acts just so much like a snotty kid who's also very hilarious. Um, and their and more importantly, their rapport is very good. Uh, they definitely have a good chemistry, and they have an on-screen relationship that is built off of kind of like, you know, like she loves him so much as her stepdad, but she still also is hurting from her actual dad walking out. Um, and uh, he's constantly, you know, trying to prove to her that, like, that he is on her side, that he chooses her. Um, him being a, a foster kid who, you know, was lost in the system and. We find out other things just like he knows how much it is important it is to have a parent who is really there for you. And so you can see that that's an important relationship to him, even more so in the film than his wife. Like, yes, he loves his wife, <laughs> but the one they play up in the film is his relationship to Jesse.
0: I do have a question about the kid and the spectrum of precociousness.
1: Too annoying. Where does this child lie? So Precocious, I tend to see that as like cutesy. And what I like about her is she's not cutesy. She kind of calls it like like she sees it there at times. Uh, she's around the tattoo shop where everyone's cussing. And she's just sort mm-hmm. of like just taking it as it is. Uh, she yells at the ICE agent and kind of teases him. Like they're, they're very, I liked her a lot actually.
2: Yeah, and her emotional arc is actually really good, too, because she's also dealing with the fact that her mother is pregnant with Antonio's biological child. Yes, So she feels her bond with Antonio threatened because, you know, here is someone who will share his blood, who's also going to be his daughter. And I think, like Han said, you know, child actors, children in these films, it's hit or miss, right? But her character really adds to also to the stakes of like Antonio wanting to stay with his family
1: yeah I I appreciated her a lot I I am kind of critical of child stars especially when they are the one child in the movie because uh, <laughs> then they have to be either very um, obnoxiously precocious which is pretty much like all the Hallmark movie children or, uh, <laughs> yeah, but I felt like she was just kind of real. And, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed her a lot. Um,
2: I do agree that the film hinged more on the chemistry between, um, Antonio and Jesse more than Antonio and his wife, played by, um, Alicia Vikander And their relationship is supposed to be one out of love, but they spend most of the film fighting <laughs> because of the, the tensions brought on by the on- oncoming deportation of Antonio. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, that's the crux of the film, which is, um he gets in the, into a scuffle with Kathy's ex-husband's partner, the racist, who is a racist yes. cop, and he ends up being booked on like an assault charge. And because he has priors, um, is picked up by ICE to be deported because of his criminal record. So that's the main conflict of the film, which is him trying to appeal his deportation order.
1: Yeah. And and just to be clear, it wasn't just the priors that are making him get deported. They definitely contributed, but what is the loophole that the film is trying to, you know, portray is the uh, how certain adoptees, overseas adoptees, were not naturalized; they didn't become citizens, uh, even though where they yeah. were legally adopted. And so how that's much why I, does yeah. the movie dive into transracial and
0: transnational adoption? Is that just kind of like the background of his character? Do we, because because there is, I've been. Uh, on TikTok there's been really interesting uh, <laughs> conversations about like the ethics of adoption generally um and you know it's kind of even more complicated once you get to transnational and transracial and something that I think has always been painted as you know saviory right like this american couple mm-hmm. oh th- like this 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 you know asian baby from asia is so lucky to have been adopted by an American couple. Oh my God. Like, what, you know, they won the lottery. Um, not really addressing, you know, the colonial roots of why these adoptions are s- so lopsided, the supply and demand, like the fucked up reasons why there's that supply and demand. Um, as well as, you know, there are really shitty adoptive parents, such as Antonio LeBlanc's parents, who, you know, bare minimum didn't even do something like, File for citizenship for him.
1: I don't think they knew. I think this is the problem is a lot of people actually didn't know. And that's why all these people as adults now are getting deported. Yeah. Um. Although his parents yeah. were shitty. Yeah. I, d- I mean, heard that.
2: so the film doesn't really, I don't think it delves a lot into the identity issues of transnational identity. There is an Asian American identity subplot that we can get into later because I was talking to Hana about this. It's a part that I appreciated but didn't know if we needed. Um, but in terms of like, the adoptee story, like his adoption story is his adoptive parents basically gave him up for, to foster care after six months after he arrived. So that's why his papers were never finalized because he got, kind of got lost in the shuffle. And he bounced from foster home to foster home, um, which is another thing that happens. Like parents adopt babies from another country and then realize, oh, wait, it's hard to be a parent. <laughs> right?
1: I don't want it anymore. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and then also clearly we're assuming that many of his foster parents were white and we do get a confirmation at least of one foster parent being white. So uh, it's only in the background, but they really never delve into it. This is not a story about him being raised by any of these people, but more of how the system uh, let him down and that's how ICE can get to people. So um, yeah, I think... I, I'm, you know what? Look, as much as Justin Chon likes to f- you know, fit into his films, I'm surprised that wasn't a subplot. But uh, <laughs> that would have made this movie maybe three hours. That was
2: so. a good point. I mean, the subplot that it did fit in, which is the Asian-American subplot, which I guess we can touch into. There is another side sure. character um, who is a Vietnamese woman named Parker, played by Linda Dan Pham, who he meets at the hospital because she is a, a cancer patient. Um, and there's this really...
0: That's already if, a lot.
2: Um, yeah. <laughs> um, there's this... I don't know if it's brilliant or cheesy, but there is a, a wig reveal moment that, <laughs> I don't know. What did you, what did you think of Lynn's character? I mean, that
1: moment, I think you summed it up correctly, uh, where in order to find out that she has a cancer patient, it was basically not seeing her with her wig, but the moment that they choose for that is very interesting. Um, but anyway, uh, so what did I think about her character? Um, was I in general happy that she was there? Sure. Um, but I did feel like it was one more plot wedged into the story. And the way I described it is she is basically her his magical Asian uh, <laughs> trope, that character who introduces him to the 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 mystical wonders of of being Asian and and Asianness because the thing is, this is actually where we if we want to talk about identity is he is not very uh, connected to his Asian roots in any single way. Uh, He has murky memories of his mother who gave him up, but uh, he was raised American, you know? So, you know, he has an accent. Justin Chone does do a Louisiana accent. It's pretty thick. I would like to hear from people from Louisiana (laughs) about their opinions on it. I think it's a little heavy at times and sometimes it slips, but, you know, being Texan, who am I to say? Um, So. What I liked about her is it is very true that uh, a lot of Vietnamese people are in New Orleans or that area or Louisiana. Um, I I feel a sort of like there's a sort of rivalry in my mind. It's not, probably not in real life between Louisiana and Houston because there are we have a very strong Viet Cajun sort of food scene in both areas. <laughs> um, I also find it just interesting because in my mind, as a kid, I always thought it made sense that the Vietnamese people ended up in those two places because they're built off of swamps, <laughs> and uh, Vietnam is very you humid. Can and you can fish. You can fish. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's coastal. They're coastal places. Um, so yeah, I I very much enjoyed that they set them there, uh, Vietnamese people there, to the point where we also meet her extended family and um and and attend a Vietnamese barbecue. So you know that was nice and warm and fun. Yeah, uh, very very weird scene with a um, um, very badly made spring roll, oh. rolls.
2: Oh, <laughs> I mean,
1: <laughs> it's not a bad scene. It's it's a perfectly it's good Badly rolls yeah, And, and- yeah.
0: summer rolls though.
1: Yes, yeah, and and it was b- badly rolled by him. That and, makes sense and to for be the fair, character. Those <laughs> are hard to make. Yeah, exactly, and it's hard to make as a kid because I, uh, doing these when I was growing up you want to stuff in as many things as possible and then it breaks apart because <laughs> the wrap is too wet. Um, so yeah, it's, it's- I,
2: yeah, I, I'm not good at making those by hand. My It always just sticks to each other. Um, but the whole subplot with Parker seems like an involuntary impulse of Justin Sean to add an Asian American storyline to this film um, that, that, is explicitly asian-american right because it's about antonio being in the space where everyone around him is asian doing asian things it allows him to do the very like again it's not a subtle film they outright compare the korean community and the vietnamese community as two communities affected by war right? her dad
1: literally <laughs> says this like we are very similar we're we've been we've dealt with many things but we are strong <laughs> So I, was just like, I was like, look, you're not wrong, but also I don't know any Vietnamese person who would say that to a Korean person. Yeah.
0: It'd just really be more like shady, like snipes at each other behind the back, right? And it, yeah. it,
1: it, my mom, she would basically overpraise Korean things um, because that's how she overcompensates for discomfort.
2: And as superfluous as this whole like subplot is, I kind of loved it. I kind of yeah. enjoyed it. Um it, like the whole Vietnamese American backyard like block party was like super cool. I wanted to be there so bad.
1: They of course had a band. There was uh, karaoke. Uh, for for if there was karaoke, a live band karaoke. Like this is like upper level. Which is karaoke. his
2: um his way of setting up um Lisa Vikander's much mentioned musical number where she gets up and sings blue Bayou." the title again blue Bayou. not a very subtle movie yeah.
1: no not at all but you know what i love the moment i i have to say it worked for me she's she's not a professional singer she did a very good job yeah um it was heartfelt uh i liked the moment and and these are things like i don't need everything to be subtle um this one moment worked for me but i think there needs to be less of these big moments and so if you keep this one and then you keep maybe two others that's fine but i feel like it was just kind of like so many in a row <laughs> like oh that was meaningful oh that was meaningful you know and so i was just like yeah pick your moments uh but yeah i like the barbecue i like i like a lot of that it just did feel like it was kind of shoehorned but yeah, so it it was a very interesting thing. I like the actress herself. Um, the The father's comments were always just way too on point. Um, and yeah, she was the magical uh, awakening of his Asian side. So
2: yeah, and so I think overall, I mean, this film isn't a film about Asian American identity, right? It's a film about this guy who is just given the raw deal in life, right? Adopted by parents who did end up not wanting him having to resort to doing crime to get by and having that past kind of follow him around. In addition to like being microaggressed by everyone around him, right. By his, his mother-in-law, by his, his would be employers, by people on the street. Um, You can see all this kind of like bearing down on him. And, and, you know, like we mentioned, Justin Chan's performance is really strong and it's strong enough to kind of carry this film, which, which, would have been really easy to mess up, right? It would have been easy to kind of take it all the way over, make it too melodramatic, and in turn, take away from the believability, right? Because what Justin Sean's performance does is keeps the drama believable because you see the pain and you kind of emote with him. Um, because a lot of the things that happen in this film, it's like, it's super melodramatic and you watch it and you you know what it's trying to do. You know what it wants from you. And you give in anyways. And I think that's what sets it apart from like, you no, know, the last issue movie I watched in the festival was just Mercy. Um, which is another one of these issue films that is designed to make you feel guilty for not doing enough in life, right? You, you know you know these issue films. It's like, oh, now I've learned about civil rights. There's a call do you, do you to the action
0: to- implicit <laughs> in these issue films. Let's mm-hmm. just put it that way. And, you know, most of the times they're very mm-hmm. effective. Um, and let's be mm-hmm. real. How many people are going to sit down and read a book about, you know, uh, deportations of undocumented Asian Adoptees, which is a very real issue, right? And, um, you know, like deportation and and undocumented, just the und- undocumented uh, experience is a very Asian American issue. Um, that gets lost yeah. in you know the thick of other stereotypes like mono minority myth. Um, so yes, there's an implicit call to action. That's not necessarily <laughs> a bad thing.
1: Yeah, this is also, I think, the second film that we discussed on this podcast that deals with this uh although this is adoptees uh, we did also watch yellow rose um and that was also another southern asian <laughs> so uh very happy for that representation um my i assigned this to my one of my writers um to cover at salon and you know she's very fairly young and hasn't watched a lot of art films or indie films or things that are not mainstream. So I was like, what did you think? She's like, well I learned a lot from it. And so I was like, well, that's the first reaction pipe. <laughs> you know? And then she's like, they also looked at the scenery a lot. <laughs> Which I thought was really I mean, funny. I was like, Yeah. I like the set I like the sense of place that he he established with I, I i think he made New Orleans look gorgeous. There was a lot of swamp and Spanish moss. Um but he also sets a sense of place in Gook and in Miss Purple. So I think that's just part of his signature and um, really grounding it in that identity of, um, uh, same with like with the blue collar workers or any of those things. It's like, for me, it just made it feel more authentic and specific. All right. So Han and Marvin, is this
0: good pop?
2: I say yes. You know, I personally would have preferred a more subtle film. I think that's just more like my personal preference, um, but the melodrama does serve a purpose. And in the end, it's a film that'll leave like the audience, especially those unfamiliar with the subject, with um with complicated feelings, right? And hopefully that'll lead to action or at least a more enlightened perspective when looking at these issues. And I think that's. In the end, that's what you want from an issue film, right? Something that'll that'll galvanize people to think about these issues more. You know, um, I don't know if Justin has a you know a campaign because I know Just Mercy had like a whole like advocacy campaign to launch with the uh, film. I'm probably not. Sure not. I mean, that. Just
0: Mercy is very specific because it is Brian Stevenson's story. You know, the founder of mm. EJI, uh, um, and he he's amazing. He's just like such an efficient organizer in that way and has been so smart about getting a story out this one is not really based on anything but i would love to have seen some activation with those communities because that's an ongoing problem right like there are many uh vietnamese americans um a few i know a few stories of korean american adopt not necessarily adoptees but like you know were undocumented or who have been uh in prison and are now at risk of being deported even though they've spent their entire lives here and that like being the people who get sent back who get deported they do not do well most of the time there are cases of suicide people committing suicide of immense like breakdowns um yeah it's not a good fate to be bestowed upon anybody so hopefully, I mean, I feel like this does break some of those like stereotypes of Asians as like everything's fine, we're doing well, everything's great. <laughs> Our biggest concern is, uh, you know, is Michelle
1: G- yoga gonna love us? Um, <laughs> so for most of the reasons that you said, I did eventually come on the side of yes, this is a good pop. I think the my issues with melodrama is usually I like melodrama in in ironic comedic. Since um, it better be over the top to, for me to uh, enjoy it, let's say. But this one was melodrama to the um, that was very earnest. And there was just enough of sort of a sweet side to the movie that made me eventually kind of embrace it. Uh, and, you know, yes, it also has a good message. It has information out there uh, that, and, you know, it drew my awareness to something that yes i knew about the deportations and things like that but this loophole that um that affected so many adoptees and of course that's a huge thing in america is overseas adoptees um that i was actually not aware of uh i mean i had heard of some adoptees being deported but i didn't know that it was because of this huge issue that affected so many people. So yeah, I was glad that it, at least we got a few title cards by the end and some photos of people who had been adopted, um, who had to be deported, (laughs) uh, some people who's, who were still waiting to hear, um, to make it kind of real for the audience. Um, and I think, I don't know if there will be any sort of extra because I didn't see any other calls to action, but, um, I think, it will cause people to, like I did, start googling right after I saw the movie.
2: Yeah, the film definitely does its job in building awareness, which is great. We didn't even we didn't even talk about the heist. There's a heist Wait, scene what? in the of this movie.
1: How, what is <laughs> this it's movie? Barely, it's barely. <laughs> I mean, there is a heist. There's, but it's barely. Like, we don't get to hear it. We don't get all the things that we love. Does heist. He assemble films, a team? So. There's no assembling a team. They're already there. Um, I just remembered there, some, yeah. when
2: that scene appeared, I was like, oh, wow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it, there's really like something for everyone
2: here. Yeah. On that note, um, that'll do it for a discussion of Blue Bayou, the latest film from Justin Sean that's um, hitting theaters this Friday. Um, you should check your local listings to see if it's playing in your theater. Um, thank you, Jess, for taking the steering wheel. This episode. Maybe I'll just let you hold for
1: huh. Hi, I'm Marvin. <laughs> <laughs> you you're you you do not have the melodious no, uh, I don't. stylings of his I don't, NPR voice. I don't. That's,
0: that's, <laughs> hey, I that's don't not how our dynamic works, okay? I'm the one who like freaks out and get <laughs> too excited, and then Marvin's like the chill
1: one.
2: <laughs> I drive yeah. just provides the hot spicy taste. I'm the
1: body man, you know? <laughs> I'm the I'm 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 the thief.
2: <laughs> All right. Uh, If people want to find out more of your thoughts, where can they go?
1: My trash takes are on Twitter at Just You Tweets. And I am at Anonymous.
2: You can find me at Marvin. You can find our show at Good Pop Club. We are a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Check out our fellow Asian-American hosted podcasts by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. And yeah, thank you for joining us on the Good Pop Culture Club. Uh, We'll see you all next time. Bye, everyone.
0: Bye. Bye.